Thank you for joining us. Brendan Traxler is the founder of Atlantis Sea Colony, building underwater habitats. And we've talked before on the Seasteading Today podcast. And Brendan also gave a great presentation for a previous Seasteading Social that's up on our YouTube channel. So be sure to check that out. Brendan, welcome. Thank you very much. And thank you for everybody that came in today. And it's going to be listened to this later, too. Yes. So last time we talked, uh, you had been looking for a location to uh, to test out a prototype for the underwater habitat. So can you tell us what's been going on since then? Have you tested a prototype yet? No. So where we're at with all that is we've actually got um, a place over and actually so versus going out in the ocean right right away uh, and having to bear down with all the elements of, of the salt water and the rising tides and all that kind of stuff. We've got a place inland um, that's controlled that uh, we have a verbal agreement with. They said, Hey, you build a thing and we can put it where, over here. It's a, it's a rock quarry. That's uh, it's a popular diving spot. So it's got a bunch of scuba divers and stuff and it's got a, I've been there several times. So that's where we're looking at putting it right now. Although we are still keeping our, our options open. We've contacted some other places too. So yeah, we're, we're trying to find as many, opportunities right now to give us some options once we finally do drop one in the water. And you were working with a container, is that right? You're going to start out with a container modified maybe? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So that's, that's the whole thing. I was just on the a zoom call with our, one of our engineers um, Tuesday night. Um, and you know, he, he's, you know, he goes, if you're in force, it's going to work fine because are you sure you want to do a container? Um, and that's what we, we get a lot of is why a shipping container? Are you sure you want to do a shipping container? And yeah, yeah, that's the, the, the plan we're shooting for at right now, unless, you know, something crazy comes up that that's not going to work. But yes, that's, that's we're and for, I can go into multiple reasons why we're going that route. But as of right now, that's the short answer is yes, we're using a shipping container. Yeah. Please tell us more about why shipping to container. So looking at the business model for down the road, it's, it's a universal building element. It's like anywhere in the world that the same, a shipping container, a 40 foot shipping container, 20 foot shipping container, same measurements, no matter where you're at in the world. So from that standpoint, as we expand out um, down the road and we bring on other clients in different areas of the world and stuff like that, it's a, they can design around that. Say you're going to put a home in it or whatever you're going to do with it. Um, you can design around those design elements. Plus, especially for us on a shoestring budget, trying to get started, it was a low cost route of getting a place to put something in um, where you can get a ship container for five, $6,000 versus going out and custom building something that would be quite a bit more um, just for the shell. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think um, it's a, oh, there's an economics term for it that, but one of the examples is given is the USB cord. And it's the idea that people innovating in many different areas will, without any higher level authority telling them to, will find a, a design that works because you need that universality. You need something that that works across marketplaces and locations and different technologies. And so like the USB is the is one of those examples. But I think the shipping container is another because of, of, of why what you described that it's it's something that um, a lot of people work with. And so the the specs are known and the the materials are known and it's uh, makes it easier to coordinate and get materials and develop. Yeah. And, and on top of that too, especially when you're looking at, Hey, if you're going to design this for like a, a, a hotel suite or for a, a private home or whatever you're going to do because of the tiny home community that's already out there, everything has already been designed around the, these, these footprints already. There's thousands upon thousands of different companies that are building tiny homes built around shipping containers. So it's easy to transport that that's already been built on land, the bunch, bunch of the infrastructure for that and put it into an underwater um, location. So a lot of the legwork's already been done as far as how do you work on spacing and getting stuff into a this smaller footprint. And then as far as um, modifying the shipping container, I know water tightness is probably the, the most obvious concern, but what are some of the other uh, engineering concerns when you're putting that underwater for people to be in safely? Yeah, well, obviously that the water tightness is, is number one. We don't, it can't be leaking, but um, uh, you know, windows is the other one. In, in most of the things you see out there, if you look at like, I'm not sure how many people are familiar with the, the underwater aspect of things because um, that's not a, a huge focus to most people. It's very niche, but usually you have smaller round windows to see out of. And we want to go with a more modern approach and having larger squared windows like you would traditionally have in your your house or, your, or a hotel or something along those lines. Um, so that's a designing element that we're still working on as far as how big can we actually go um, and be safe. Um, so there's a, 
obviously it's going to have to be about three to four inches thick, but as far as the, the actual width and the height is, is still up as big as possible is where we want to go. But the other thing is uh, just the, the pressures of the water itself. The prototype is only going to be around 20 to 30 feet, so it's not going to be a lot of pressure on it, but still there is going to be some pressure there that we have to reinforce to protect against that. And then as you go deeper, obviously that becomes a different concern. Um, and then we've got a different model per se to uh, protect against that. All right. Are there any questions from the audience about the underwater design or any other questions for Brendan? I know it's crazy. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where like, what are you talking about? It, it's also, it's one of those things where, you know, for, you know, this is something that I've been dreaming of since high school. So it's, you know, it's uh, every time I tell people they usually, I just get laughed at and I understand. Um, but there is actually a larger a decent following and large community of people out there trying to do it. Um, you know, as I said, Jules Undersea Lodge is a underwater habitat in Florida. We're actually, they're doing a hundred man, right? They got a guy staying a hundred days there right now, setting a world record for um, basically the longest period of time underwater in a manned underwater habitat. And so he's there for a hundred days testing the psychological, physiological, and a bunch of different scientific stuff while he's there. So you've got that, plus you've got, um, several other underwater habitats that have been around in the past and still exist to this day, um, but they're all designed and have been designed for the scientific community. So we're trying to go in a different approach and open it up to the everyday man. I think it, last time we spoke, we talked about the grandma effect and that's kind of where we're with the whole thing is that, Hey, we have to build these things. And the, the end goal has to be that this is available and open to anybody to be able to visit regardless of your, your, your age or your, illness or handicap or whatever. Yeah, very cool. I just posted a link in the chat to a Smithsonian Magazine article, and I'll put it in show notes for the podcast um, about the professor staying underwater. So that's really interesting. I think, you know, that's something I hadn't considered because I figured that we we already knew that science, science, you know, the big amorphous being of science knows what happens to human beings underwater. But I guess we we really don't for people staying over an extended period of time. I mean, I, I'm sure I'm sure space uh, has much harsher uh, effects on the body than underwater. But it'll you know we don't know what we don't know. True, and that's one right, one of the reasons why there's a lot of you know NASA's used underwater habitats for decades because of that the parallel that that they call it an analog because of that reason because the ocean and being underwater in that weightless environment and the fact that to leave your domicile you have to gear up to this this alien world out there so using the ocean uh similar to space there's a lot of similarities there that nasa has recognized and you know as this space race continues to grow other organizations whether it's blue origin or spacex or axiom space or whomever may be looking into similar things so the, the space community is somebody else that we're very much looking at as well Cool. So smarter than the average bear requested speak. You should see it something you can click on to to join the stage and ask your question. You can request to speak, uh, and then I'll invite you to the stage. You can ask a question. We're talking with Brendan from Atlanta Sea Colony about underwater habitats. Go ahead, Pete. Pete Abrams here. Um, thanks for uh, for doing this. I uh, just curious why underwater as opposed to just floating. Yeah. Um, that's a great question, actually, especially for this, this, uh, audience here. So it was one of those things where my first started out with this, I, whether it's ignorance or, or whatever, my fascination has always been underwater. I was scuba diving, all that kind of stuff. It's always been a fascination. So that's where I gravitated towards. However, as I got older and started looking at the elements, there were some, there's definitely pros and cons both ways. Uh, obviously building on the ocean is a whole lot easier from a lot of standpoints than trying to build underwater. But if you want to go, it depends on how far down the rabbit hole you want to go underwater. If you're looking far out, there's a lot of, you know, being underwater shields you from radiation. You know, it, it's a great protectorant from different things. You go far enough out. Um, if you look at the business aspect, underwater data centers, um, underwater greenhouses, there's a bunch of business applications that come into play that benefit from being underwater um, versus being above the water or being on land. So the, from the business aspect is really what drove why focusing on constantly being underwater. But at the same time, there it is an alien world and it's different than somebody can go uh, hang out on a, on a houseboat or, or something along those lines and not to take anything away from anybody working on like ocean builders or ArcPad, ArcTide, those different groups, because what they're doing is amazing work and difficult work. But it, it's not such a, an alien world um, as this. And so trying to tap into a little bit of that passion for space, we're working on an inner space um, version of that and um, using that towards our marketing at, 
as well. Um, but ultimately, uh, I'm an introvert and I'm looking for my place to escape um, someday and just disappear from the rest of the world too. So there's part of my answer. Yeah, that, that would do it. <laughs> but no, I think there's some definite business elements to it. Um, like I said, my background was in IT in a previous life. Um, and so I look at the data center aspect where Microsoft has done it. Um, China is building them. South Korea is looking at them. There's a couple different companies that started up here in the United States. They're all looking at underwater data centers. Um, and that's a multi billion dollar industry alone right there. Um, so if we can even get a small portion of that and, and work towards that, that's ideal. I don't like to put all my eggs in one basket too. So obviously looking at the residential or the, you know, private home, um, hotel, resort type of aspect as well. And then like I said, there's different things, whether it is for the science community, even the worst case scenario as far as like fallout shelters or uh, your bug out shelter or whatever like that too. And, you know, uh, greenhouses and stuff too. So there's, there's a lot of different business elements that can come into play. Um, and that's kind of what we're designing towards is a more agnostic approach to it. There, I don't care what you do with your underwater habitat per se. Um, we just want to be the name that's building them and putting them out there for people to use. Well, I think it'll be valuable too if we have floating cities, which we hope to see. Um, we want to know the impact we're having, right? We don't want to repeat the same mistakes that we made on land, you know, People didn't know the effect that they were having on the environment, and it wasn't a major concern at that time. And we want to go forward in the ocean with the benefit of knowledge, right, and the benefit of experience and and understand what effect we're having on the ocean ecology, especially if it's deep underwater. Yeah, and that's one of the things I've talked about in the past, too, is is that out of sight, out of mind, I think is often part of our situation. Sure, we've done a great job of, of trashing parts of the the the, uh, the land, but at the same time, most people, if they see garbage and stuff, they're going to pick it up. On the ocean, we throw stuff out there, and it's a big ocean. Nobody cares about it, and most of us do a pretty good job, but there are there's still a lot of stuff that's going on out there, whether it's underwater with the coral and the fish or just on the floating water. If we're out there and we have a permanent presence out there and we're watching it on the regular, then we we have a much better idea of what's going on and a ways to protect it too and be able to monitor that over time. You know, I foresee, especially even our first habitat being loaded up with different live webcams so we can monitor what's going on in a 360 degree around what's going on and continuing down the pace. I would like to see that on most of our Wednesday go out there is that so we can monitor, even if the people themselves aren't monitoring it, we can be getting data off of those from and do with what, what needs to be done with it. Like you said, with the, the floating, uh, with the sea staying and what they're doing with like the floating uh, cities and stuff, we're always going to need some sort of topside support too. People are not going to want to spend 24, seven, 365 underwater. Um, so we have to have that escape too, for the land to get your vitamin D or just a, a vacation and relax. And um, so, you know, I see it as a symbiotic relationship there with, you know, as far as with floating uh, houses, floating cities and stuff along those lines too. Sure. And as far as like monitoring the ocean, I was just recently listening to a podcast about whales and how little we know about how whales are communicating. Like we, we know about whale song, but we don't know as much about, you know, how the whales are communicating with each other, how far away a whale has to be to be considered in a pod. You know what I mean? Like we observe whales and they're very far distance from other whales that we know of, but that, that distance may mean different between the whales, you know what I mean? And so monitoring sound as well and the effect of sound on ocean life uh, would be interesting. Absolutely. That's one of the reasons why we're, our goal is, you know, make the make the underwater habitats as, as low cost as possible so we can get as many out there as possible for that reason. You know, most of these habitats are in one location. So once you've soaked up all the information you can from that area, it, you know, it's there's not tons of use to it afterward. But if we can get a network of underwater habitats out there, we can join that information together into some kind of hive neural net of a sort and, and pull that information from it. Yeah, very cool. I also want to talk to you about just the ASC community. So you have restarted some live streams. So tell us a bit about live streaming and the goal with having these regular events. Yeah. So one of the things we did for 2023 was we kind of reevaluated what we've been doing and how we've been doing it. Um, and one of the things even is is the name. You know, we talk we're known as Atlanta Sea Colony, but that has rubbed some people raw um, or it hasn't been a best name. And I came up with that name when I was 15. So it's one of those things where uh, maybe it hasn't aged the best. So we're slowly starting to rebrand to just ASC instead of Atlanta Sea Colony because we're not really building colonies um, and it may not be only to the sea. Um, but 
that's neither here nor there. As far as the live streams go, uh, yeah, it's about every other week we have a live stream right now. We've got a themed one. And then the next time we have an open discussion one where um, we let the people, hopefully they're, they're more vocal and they chime in and stuff along those lines. If not, we've got some predetermined, um, but we do different, like we have one of our guys named, uh, that has been doing a series on different underwater habitats. It's been a deep dive into that. Last week we did Sea Lab 1, 2, and 3. And those those are always fun and informative, but otherwise they're just updates about what Atlanta Sea Colony Sorry, I'm even doing ASC is doing and different stuff like that. So every other week we have a live stream. Um, we do have then when most of those get turned into our podcast as well. Plus we've got we're on most social media platforms. Uh, we do you know uh, we do have merch as well on Patreon and all that good stuff and Discord community. It's fairly active. Um, we've got fifty some people in there. So we're we're trying to be everywhere. We've kind of tuned back on our, our social media presence and, and been more intentional about what we're putting out there um, versus we seem to be in the, the past more of like a news um, thing. We've been putting out everything about any type of ocean related stuff. And we pulled it back to just focusing mostly on ASC and underwater habitats this year to drive our focus and who we are home because they're starting to get some confusion about what we were really trying to do. So we're trying to be more intentional this year about our message and who we are. Yeah. So your podcast is called Colonize the Ocean? Correct. All right. Just wanted to make sure that was, we had that. And yeah, the word colony, I think it's different when you're talking about colonizing a place where there aren't currently humans living, but yeah, I can understand the confusion. Yep. So anything with the podcast is like, well, I'd like to rebrand it eventually too, but we've got 60 some podcasts behind it. And it's one of those things where uh, at this point in time, I'm not going to struggle with that. I was a focus on ASC because it's really our, where we're focuses at, at this point in time. Sure. So about 50 people in the Discord, and then, I mean, do you have a pretty solid group of people who have been consistent followers and participants? Yeah, so we've got several, we've got half a dozen, I think, is uh, Patreon members. So we've got some people who are financially contributing. We've got a couple thousand um, on our Facebook and then spread across Instagram and LinkedIn and others. There's several hundred across all those as well. So we've got a a decent community. I think we all know how that goes. A, A small percentage is actually active of any of those communities. But that being said, we do have those ones that have been with us for quite a while and are very passionate and are, are big champions and cheerleaders for what we're, we're trying to do and uh, see the vision and um, are doing what they can with what resources they have. And that's, if you want, I'm going to segue a little bit here um, and talk a little bit about, about getting involved because last last week you guys had a, a, a seasteading event about getting involved as well. So it's cool if I talk about that for a second? Yes, please. Yeah. So it's one of those things where we all have skills. And whether it's financial or even just liking and sharing posts, uh, most of us organizations out there, whether it is even ocean builders who are doing amazing stuff, they can still benefit from your contributions. Um, if you don't have a, a skill set that you can actually be hands-on with them, um, liking their stuff, even the Seasetting Institute as a nonprofit need your help. So I would just encourage anybody that that is interested in that. Maybe it's not us. Maybe it is um, ArcPad, ArcTide, or one of the other half a dozen groups out there doing stuff. Get involved with them. If you can donate money towards them, I know they would greatly appreciate that, but even more so, I know like for us, we were looking for people to jump on board and volunteer their time and their skills to help us push this forward. So you may think that you're not going to do help out much, but I guarantee you as somebody trying to do a startup that whatever you can do, we would gladly welcome in any format. Money's always great. Your your personal skill set's even better, but um, liking and sharing our posts and getting the message out there speaks thousands because you never know who's going to see that. And that's that one person that might know the investor or have the means to take us to the next level. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. And so that's, is it, is it the support of, of the public that's helpful to you? And, or is it, you know, what else is, is part of that? Someone who may not be an engineer or an architect, like how, or, a, or a sailor even, you know, how does that? Yeah. So, so I, I have said multiple times, it's it's one of those things, it's all about networking because you never know who you're going to reach out to in touch. And just because of random posts I have put on forums in the past, I've been reached out to by investors in the past that have talked to me, has, I saw this post. So it's one of those things where you liking and sharing a post by whomever, it gets it out there into a different community that may not have heard about it beforehand. So I'm a big proponent on liking and sharing social media because, because of that fact. But at the same time, obviously, if you have a skill set and you've got something you can do, volunteer that or talk to one of the leaders in that group to see what you can do. Um, and if and or you know, obviously, if if you want to give money, like our lowest Patreon tier is five dollars a month. 
it's like I can't go to Chick-fil-A for $5 a month. So it, it's it's an easy add-on there that, that does helps us greatly. I mean, through our Patreon members, we've been able to get artwork that we were never have, able to have before to show off our vision and simply helped with our engineering fee, uh, fees as well. Yeah. And so you, you've mentioned that you've been thinking about ASC since you were 15 years old. So what keeps you going? It's, you know, it's been, it's been a few years, I know, since you were 15. So how do you, how do you keep going? And what, you know, do you set these, the, do you set smaller goals? And then once you achieve that, that gives you motivation to keep going or, yeah, tell us about that, about following a vision for, for many years. Yeah, that's that's great because I think there's there are many people out there that have watched over the years in different organizations, whether it is underwater habitats or I'm, I'm sure you've seen it too with different startups trying to build floating, even floating houses or floating piers and stuff on those lines that just disappeared. And it, it's extremely difficult to stay motivated in, in an area where you're, you feel like you're constant, constantly failing because you can't get traction. I never imagined it being so hard to raise money for something that I thought was a great idea. And maybe that's on me, but either way, it's still, it's still a valid point that how do you stay motivated over such a long period of time? And in fairness, I allowed my nine to five to get in the way for a good chunk of that time. And this just ASC just kind of sat on the back burner. We had a, a website and an online presence, but nothing was happening with it. I didn't promote it. So it's one of those things where the fear of failing at this point in time keeps me going the most because I know that in my heart of hearts, it's, it is a valid and viable business plan. And it is a good idea because so many people out there are trying to, to accomplish the same thing, but it becomes a financial situation more than anything at this point in time to get it accomplished like any project. But surrounding yourselves with people is good. I, I'm constantly trying to network with like-minded people to get that encouragement. I have a great counterpart over in Turkey, actually is working on underwater habitat that we have regular zoom calls together just to encourage each other and keep moving forward. But the community as well has been one of the things I keep coming back to because I don't want to let them down. So it's that fear of not wanting to let down this community that has stood by and watched this, watch this grow over the years because they see the vision and they know it's a, it's a reality as well. So I think it, it depends on the person, but there's different ways that you can keep yourself going. And I'm not saying there's not low times. And last year was a lot of them for me personally. I just, you know, trying to reevaluate what we're doing wrong. Why aren't we growing at the pace we need to? And what sacrifices and risks do we need to make in order to make it happen? Yeah. And then, you know, I hear interviews with very successful business people and sometimes they have to pivot and sometimes they have to shift their goal and and revisit like what what is what is actually important to accomplish? And uh, I think people get lost when the project changes and then the name changes, you know? So I think that's really important to consider that if you change the name of ASC, people will think Atlantis Sea Colony disappeared, but you're still working on the same project. So I think the community helps you stay visible <laughs> to people that even if the project changes a bit or the name changes, you're still working on that same goal. Yeah. And, and also in the community, it can be, it's a do it to edged sword too, because as the, the owner and the visionary for, for whatever group, you need to stay focused to your cores and what you want to do. With any organization, we're going to get lots of feedback, positive and negative. And one of the things has been a lot of heat over the shipping container, like I said, or just the design elements itself. And like, why don't you try this? Why don't you do this? And it, it's been hard for me to say, this is the vision. Here's how we're going to proceed and to build towards that vision, regardless of people who may be a lot of smarter in some different areas, putting that input, I, I value the input and I want to hear their their reasons and I'll have a deep in-depth discussion. But at the end of the day, it's my call on how it moves forward. And the same for all these different organizations out there too, it, to maintain the alpha aspect, I guess, of, of, of trying to be who you are to, I hate using that term, to focus on, on, on your vision and make sure it, it goes, because at the end of the day, it, I'm the one that has to answer for it my checkbook has funded a lot of it too. So sure. Well, it's the leadership point. Like there, there could be many ways to accomplish the same goal. And it, it, so it's not that other folks are, are wrong um, and they may have really great ideas, but you're the one who execute. And so you have to find the path that works for you to execute the plan. Yeah. Cause I mean, all the, like so all the different ideas I've heard, they will all work. It's not like the, any of them are, are wrong. It's just for what we're trying to achieve. And my, as I see in my head, my long-term vision, it won't work for the long-term vision. And, and once again, my long-term vision may be completely off too. And we'll see as we get into this, once again, I may have to pivot quite a bit um, as we drop the first one in the water and then say, Hey, this worked, this didn't work. Well, how do we have to iterate on that design? And it may completely change some of the, the, the knowledge that we had on it too. It's one of the things we just don't know until we do it. 
Yeah, I think that's hard to communicate to a broad audience, too, that just because you tested something and it didn't work out doesn't mean that that's a failure. You've learned valuable knowledge. And we've we've had that with the Seasteading Institute. We're coming up on our 15th anniversary. And, you know, there have been several large projects that haven't come to completion for various reasons. And uh, and it's not that, I mean, it's very disappointing and we lose supporters every time a project fails to move forward. And that's really, that's, I mean, it's, it's not easy. It's really tough, but we also learn a lot about, you know, what's feasible and, you know, we refocus on a different goal. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of the things too, I think it's the pressure I put on myself and I'm sure other people do it as well in this type of situation is, is every year this, this goes on, I feel like I, I'm risking that as well as, is losing the, 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 not, not necessarily the sport, but obviously that comes into it is, but the, the energy and the momentum on this project as well. So it's one of those things where I, I feel like I'm always up against the gun as having to get this accomplished and, and pushing it. But at the same time, I, I also need, there needs to be patience in there too. And it's a, it's a balancing act of, of taking risks for, Versus being wise about those risks too, um, but yeah, especially and I, like I mentioned before, and you just mimic that was that yeah, there's been a bunch of them that have come and gone. I know, especially in the underwater world, uh, since that's where my my focus has been, I've seen probably a dozen over the past 20 years that I've, I've actually talked to in one format or another that have come and gone. Um, I've tried to. There's been several that are still kind of out there, and I've tried to get them on the on the podcast or on the live stream, so like that to, to put their message out there and fear or not wanting to do it or whatever. I just feel like they're shooting themselves in the foot. But once again, they they know what they're trying to do or trying to accomplish, or I hope they do at least. And it's a big ocean, and there's plenty of space out there for all of us above the water and under the water to coexist and work together because there's tons of real estate out there. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I kind of just ramble sometimes, and it, does, it made me most co- cohesive conversation here sometimes. Any comments from the audience? You can request to speak, and then I can invite you to the stage. Pete, I know you have your project, your Plasticrete, and I wonder if any of this resonates with you. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, I, I definitely agree that there is plenty of real estate, and I love the idea of floating, not fighting. Um, we have the abilities to put, you know, many, many more people or accommodate many people on this planet. And I think that we are just sort of locked into this mindset of scarcity and fighting over territory and fighting over scarce resources. Um, and I, I don't believe that. I've been diagnosed as pathologically pronoid, so that's probably where it comes from. I think that the universe is conspiring for the betterment of everything. So I think that we need to look at, I would like to see us looking in the directions of providing uh, vibrant ecosystems that can occupy these incredible niches. Um, we came originally from the ocean, and I think it's only a matter of time before we go back to it. And it's an evolutionary track that is going to take time, and it's going to take mistakes, and it's going to just, uh, you know, take time. And, you know, I applaud all and any, any efforts that will get us back there. Personally, I think I'd like to start with floating. You know, obviously, you know, what you said about these ideas about going up into space and people wrapping their head around living on a planet that requires an incredible amount of engineering, technology, resources to get you and to keep you on that planet. And people don't seem to have any problem, you know, accepting that as, you know, a, a scenario. Um, and yet you talk about living on or under the water here on this planet and they kind of take a step back and their heads askew and they're wondering, you know, where is the closest exit? So I don't know. I just, uh, I'm rambling too. So we could ramble on forever. <laughs> no, I, I think it's really interesting uh, to have this conversation. It's where seasteaders are on the fringe, right? And it's, Oh yeah. I, I'm always curious, you know, to learn more about us, like, because being on the fringe, maybe some of us have a hard time, fitting into society. And so when we're talking about forming new society on the ocean, what are the challenges for a bunch of us who have been misfits to then go and like try and form a society? You know, I think it's it's worth talking about and thinking about because I do expect us to be living together out there and I want us to be able to, re to resolve conflicts and live peaceably and successfully out there. So yeah, it takes some, some thinking ahead of time. Right. Um, I mean, my designs... Um 
are just uh i mean i i just envision something that is very inexpensive and very accessible like you know i don't know if you know about my work but i just see this plastic film in particular is this incredible resource that is very undervalued and trying to different techniques to create structural components out of it so i don't know i just i just i envision these floating vibrant verdant ecosystems where everybody has their own space and there's a communal space and its growth and strength is from that and uh yeah i, I it just you know it's a lot different than a lot of the other designs i see um and you know i think like like you said there's a lot of room out there um so it's not like we need to sort of fight over the space yeah Brennan, would you talk a bit about how you envision the underwater habitat dealing with growth, right? Because that's the problem with vessels on the ocean is barnacle growth and all of that. And I'd like it to not be a problem for seasteads, right? I think there's a lot of effort and money and time spent in removing growth, and it would be much more efficient to have a habitat that could be coexistent with barnacles and, and sea life growing on, on the structure. But But what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's obviously it opens up a whole entire possibility for a, a, a different business for cleaning underwater habitats. So, I mean, there's always that. But at the same time, you know, with the the advent of an underwater Roomba, for say, you know, there's so many ROVs and different mechanized ways of cleaning off even our windows and stuff along those lines. So it'd be one of those things where you could do that. But at the same time, we want to find a, a symbiotic relationship with the ocean around it. We want to leave more than we take from it. Um, that's one of the problems that we also find too, is people are saying, just leave the ocean alone. We've done enough, enough damage as it is. Well, sure, we're going to disrupt it at first a little bit to put anything there. But by being able to build a coral reef around your habitats or whatever, we're going to be able to add much more back to the, in the, in the long run. Okay. Yes. I mean, I, I definitely agree. I think we should work with nature and, you know, I think the designs should incorporate it and actually augment it. Um, I see designs where the material that's in the water, I mean, with, with my material, I would be incorporating you know, local sand and within that sand, there would be bits and pieces of mollusks and oysters and whatnot. And once you have that, that's where they're going to attach themselves to. So I, I see the actual barnacles and whatnot adding to the structural integrity of the material instead of it being um, something that needs to be removed. It's also a lot easier if you don't have to do anything. And I'm kind of a, a lazy person. So I feel like it should be more designed with the intent of growth and, you know, having some sort of control over the growth. But I think that that's definitely within a, the wheelhouse, so to speak. Yeah, I I agree. Obviously, to be as, as symbiotic with it with the your surroundings is ideal, and, and especially like with yours, the the more we can use nature, the better. I mean, not only from making a public appearance, obviously the the, the people want to see that where you're doing something green, but just from the standpoint of common sense too, it's, it's sustainable for one thing, and um, it, it looks better and it's it's healthier too. Yeah, I mean, uh, if I can just talk a little bit about my designs, it's just sort of like there are cells and then the spaces between the cells, water flows, and that space between the cells provides habitat for all sorts of fish and, and wildlife. Um, and I think, you know, within the ocean, we all know it's basically a desert until a coral reef grows and until a, there's a sunken ship, um, shipwreck that provides habitat. Um, and so I'm trying to design within those parameters of creating spaces for uh, fish and animals to grow and provide protection and whatnot. Yeah. And, I, and say, and that's one of the, the great things about what we're all trying to do here too, is there is no right or wrong way about what we're doing and, and the variety of different design elements we can throw out there because there isn't any, I mean, there's physics rules, physics rules, but besides that, there's no saying you have to build it this way. So I'm super excited about, especially the next 20 years of seeing everything that's going to be, you know, popping up in the ocean environment in this blue economy, as, as we're calling it. Right. I get a little competitive when we talk about the blue economy because I want it to be done our way, right? Like I want us to to be leading the the charge in like, what does it mean to be on the ocean? It means looking for eco-restorative solutions, you know, not just going to extract resources, but to, to find new ways of living that can then also be replicated on land, right? Like there's a lot of movement just for communities to have 
more eco-restorative homes on land too. So, you know, I want to innovate that type of thinking on the ocean where we have a blank slate and then that can be replicated back on land. Yeah. And it's one of those things I think too, it's, you know, these, this is going to happen. We're going to have floating cities. We're going to have underwater cities eventually. And being selfish, I want ASC to be the name synonymous with starting that and building those. Likewise, you know, TSI wants a similar. So yes, I, I totally get it. What are some action items? I'm an action junkie, just in case nobody, nobody, nobody's heard that yet. Hello. Hi, Annie. Hello. I was wondering if, and I really haven't explored your company, although I looked at your website some, and it looks really cool. But all the container um, hydroponics that are going on in Los Angeles, I know I toured in 2016 that was serving SpaceX close to SpaceX and they had been refining their programming constantly to get more and more perfect growing based on data they had I think cameras in there as well as sorts of IOT stuff um, wondering if reaching out to one of them about doing an underwater thing perhaps in combination with Altacy which is a maybe floating or not floating but it's a built out not just a maker space an innovation center off the coast of LA off the port of Los Angeles that has like lots of grants available and research just a thought to share you know I love it um absolutely all about reaching out to whomever to try to to get this moving forward and who was who was the the company that was doing the uh greenhouse shipping containers you remember yeah and good question I was just trying to remember I think it was called local roots local roots Shipping containers, Coom Ormbin Farms are insulated, climate controlled, and have recirculating hydroponic watering systems. Yeah, you know, just whatever. There's several more since than it looks like. Yeah, I know that. You know, Elon Musk's brother, um, Kimball, he's been building. I don't know if it's the same company or not, but he's been doing the same thing too. Um, so I know there's a bunch of people out there doing it, and even there's a company, uh, a group called um, Nemo's Garden, who has little underwater pods actually. So they have an underwater greenhouse, but it's not contained it's just out there underwater with little domes uh protecting them um so they're the only ones really doing stuff like that underwater but yeah absolutely uh, you know as we're the especially when you're moving off offshore or you know i think it's math is 50 percent of people live within like 200 miles of the ocean um so the need for energy or food and all kind of stuff the more we can build out into the ocean for those communities obviously takes that that weight and that energy away from having to do stuff on land too. And likewise with the, as the startups with floating cities or floating habitats or whatever like that, I, I don't see any issues with, you know, us even just being the waste reclamation, energy storage creation type of thing for those as well. We can, they can all be handled underwater, out of sight, out of mind, and then pumped up or down to those different floating locations as well. So yeah, absolutely. I'm going to reach out. Thank you, Annie. That's a, that's a great lead. Yeah. Local routes and out to sea. And um, I know Carly was in touch with uh, somebody who runs a podcast on all kinds of innovation, but one of the recent guests was on the Grand Plaster podcast was um, somebody, I couldn't find his name, maybe after I say this, but who was doing nuclear waste, like reusing the nuclear waste to, so he has free fuel to power submarines, and I guess it's directing the energy of that way so that it's not just radiating, so it's doing some good while getting free fuel. And um, I'll try to find my, and I have the notes on this. I don't know, maybe that would be an interesting collaboration too. So with the Nemo Gardens, I thought it was really fascinating. It's common sense, but I did. But when I read that, it's so much easier to manage pests and disease with these underwater domes. I was like, yes, of course it is, you know, because you have the water uh, as a barrier between the plants and the pests and uh, and doing that without agricultural chemicals that have created all of this runoff. and Absolutely. And um, the other thing is, too, that certain plants respond better to different levels of oxygen um, as well, which you can control um, in an underwater environment or any sealed environment. You could do it on land too, but it's obviously easier if you're already in a, in a pressurized environment or could be a pressurized environment um, where you can add more oxygen or more pressure. And I think that's one of the things they're experimenting with Nemo too is because it is at a different pressure level, um, the different growth they're getting from their plants. 
Right. So I think this would be it's a solution for coastal cities, right, that are facing flooding from rising sea levels. Like that would be one of the first steps to to helping those those cities to just feed themselves is to, to grow these underwater gardens. You know, I don't know how how scalable that is, but it seems like a good step. Brendan, is there anything else you wanted to say today? Talk about um, to the seasteading community at large? Let's look at my notes here real fast. I, I don't think so. I think, you know, my, my two big things are whether you are building something like Pete there or anybody else that's listening to us at a later time is network and, and don't give up. Uh, my theory is throwing darts. I'm always throwing darts at different things and seeing what will stick as whether it's with marketing or with, or, you know, raising money or whatever like that. Keep on, keep on trying different avenues. And, and, and for those who aren't running or trying to do a, some kind of startup is, is get involved. Those are the, I mean, the, the two big things I've really been on, on my, over the last year, as I've been refocusing on looking at refocusing ASC was, is what needs to happen. And those are the two things is we need to encourage each other and network with each other. that are trying to do stuff. And for the rest of us, um, get involved. And even like myself, even though I'm already doing something, I'm also trying to get involved with other ones as well to lend whatever knowledge I may have to encourage other people or, or give feedback as well. Yes, that's one of the main goals of the Seasteading Institute to provide these channels for people to connect and share information. And so I'm glad to have you part of that, Brendan. That's why we have these events. And, you know, it's, uh, sometimes it takes a while. I know with Pete in particular, it took me a while to figure out how we could possibly support him. But now we have a, a plan that I'm working on with him to help him broaden his reach. So, so you know, if, if people reach out to the Seasteading Institute with the project idea, I will do my best to find ways to connect you with people and, you know, support your project, you know. So I always hope people will reach out to the Seasteading Institute, join our Discord server and our other online communities. Annie, did you uh, have something you wanted to ask or comment on? Yeah, I was interested in what you were talking about with the plastic, but I don't think I caught very much about it. And uh, I just wanted to mention before you answer, if you could uh, like just tell me, say again, or go into a little more detail about the plastic you're interested in. But also here in Pittsburgh, well, I'm in Wichita, Kansas, but Pittsburgh, Kansas, I've just been told by somebody who does financing for new innovation businesses who I have contact with, if maybe we need it. But Polymer, we have like one of the top two people in polymer sciences, so like new plastics, and they're getting into hemp plastics. And maybe there's something that's like bio repellent. I, I, I liked the other speaker's um, idea about having it be symbiotic with nature, but there might be some kinds of polymers that would repel bio too. But what is the plastic, if you don't mind answering that again? That was Pete, and he was, uh, was talking about the plastics here. Oh, it was Pete. Talk, somebody else was saying that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was, yeah, he was talking about his his organization is uh, dealing with the the plastics and stuff. Um, thanks for giving me the opportunity, Ben, to uh, speak about uh, the plastic crete. Yeah. So basically, the concept is to I've been playing with plastic film and utilizing that as a structural component. It's just this incredible resource that I feel is is available. A lot of the plastic, as you probably are aware, is available. And I've been playing with ways to just sort of fuse it together and take these very thin, flimsy um, elements, which have incredible long-chain polymers, and they have great, great properties. But as thin, flimsy layers, they don't really do much. But if you confuse them and just get the temperature up hot enough that they'll become sticky, and then they'll just stick to the film next to it. And if you have a lot of them and you have a very inexpensive, efficient manner to fuse them, what I do is I take sand and I heat the sand up. And the sand has this amazing capacity to transmit heat at a very constant rate, um, very slowly. And that heat and just the weight of the sand itself will fuse these layers together. Some of the sand will become embedded into the plastic, which, full disclosure, makes the plastic much, much more difficult to recycle again. But if you're looking at it as making somewhat of a permanent um you know, construction, when you build buildings, you're not like, well, let me see. So, and then the the sand itself, you can do those many, many layers, you can get the thickness that you want, you can get a lot of the qualities that you're looking for, and the sand, you make this laminate with the sand and the plastic, and the exterior layer will have 
the capacity for growth. So I'm not looking to build like a brick wall that I'm going to keep clean. I'm looking at this mainly as an armature for, for underwater that barnacles and mollusks and all things will just grow and create this basically coral reef type of ecosystem. And then when it gets above the water, there'll be spaces for plants to grow. Because what you want to do is basically keep the plastic creates the, the exterior layer from the sun. That's really the only thing that's going to break it down is the sun's rays. And with the sand encrusted, and if you use a black plastic at the end, that has anti, uh, they got protection against the sun. And the water, is it a sealant or mostly just an armature over an already sealed container? It's Yeah, so you're basically building a wall, and these walls create these cells, right? So you're building this, uh, you have a hexagonal cell design that links together with another cell. Um, so you're building these basically enclosed cells that have an opening on either end that you can have underwater will be filled with water, gives you some sense of uh, stability and, wow, I'm losing it here, um, ballast. And so, well, ballast. So it, it holds, so these cells, there's a ring of cells that are connected by, uh, means, um, then the, okay. There's a ring of cells that are connected. And underwater, these cells are filled with water. And as they're, as these rings of cells rise up out of the water, um, they're no longer filled with water, but there's a combination of water, silt, and air. So the bottom part is a, is a silt or some sort of growing medium. And as it rises up out of the water, the plants grow in between the cells that are out of the water. I think that's a little bit too much out here for <laughs> I got to get my rap single down. I'm sorry. But basically, the material is the plasticrete. It's basically taking plastic film and heating it just enough to fuse them together into this solid material. So the solid, so that, that's basically, it. it's a very, very inexpensive material to utilize that is going to have protection against, it's not going to fall apart, it's not going to rot, it's not insects are going to eat through it, it's plastic, it's all the awful things about plastic, that it lasts forever, and it's in the environment, and it's this amazing polymer that we've created that's strong and resilient, and it's plastic, you can do whatever you want, you can make it into any shape you want, and you can just need hot sand and bingo bango, you're done. Very cool. And can I ask if the, so I'm interested in a solution I once saw put out in a video by the World Economic Forum, and I don't know if it's ever been done. It seems too easy to not have been, it was a idea of a bubble wall. It's like a, something like a pipe under the, at the mouth of a river. So say take the top 10 most polluting rivers, and I think they're all in China and India right now, put the, a pipe that has holes in it, force air through it. It creates bubbles that are allow ships and fish to go through without issue, but diverts, uh, they were predicting about like 80% of the plastic, which is certainly something and then that plastic through with this bubble wall it's diverting it to somewhere and maybe this could be a role for containers like a floating container to collect that plastic and i guess since you're the plastics expert here is would that be useful that plastic that if we could correct it collect it from river pollution everybody bigger can get through without much ecological damage supposedly and it would take all the sort of material and rise it to the surface where it could be skimmed off is a, you know, is a great idea. I don't know how much, I mean, I'm working with fairly contaminated material. Um, you know, I'm working with basically single use bags and, and Brandon, I don't mean to, to hijack your, uh, your, your discussion here. I hope it's okay that I'm talking about me as you still did you, did you drop out? Anyway, um, and, uh, but I think that there would be limited utilization of that plastic. I need it to be of a fairly specific uh, quality film, basically. And there's really no shortage of, of that. But I think, you know, all, any and all, um, efforts to rid the ocean of our garbage, you know, I, I, I wholly support. And I think there should be much more interest in resources available to that. For my project, I, I would need a, a fairly cleaner, more stable for at this technology. I'm hoping to be able to use much more different types of plastics and, and whatnot later on. But for what I got now, it's uh, I, I, I would need to utilize uh, my thing.
I see. No, no, it's just like there's a plenty of plastic film. Um, so I don't need to, 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 you know, so like I could use agricultural film that gets, you know, at the end of the year, it gets put in a pile and burnt because it's got little bits of dirt and debris on it. I can have some contamination. I can have some degree of uh, not quite perfect. It's just, you know, what I love about it is like uh, there's so many thermoplastic films out there. And anyway, go ahead. You, you were asking something else. Oh, I was going to direct it to Brendan again and ask if trash collection, if just off the top of his head with this idea of, because I think this pipe with forced air is such a cheap idea. I mean, inexpensive. Could you imagine off the top of your head, something like what you're doing, the containers collecting from that? Yeah, I've never really, honestly really thought about it. I know there's organizations out there doing some, there's a, I can't remember the name of the company, they've got like floating, like autonomous boats that are doing that. They're sitting at the rivers and they're they're sorting out all the garbage and doing that they've got several of them out there already that are doing something similar so it's protecting the wildlife but picking up all the plastic off the all the garbage off the rivers i can't remember that organization but no i honestly i've, I've never really thought about it i say it's a it's a great solution a simple one too it sounds it's something to definitely look into i think the first thing would be to stop putting it in the rivers and the first first thing would be not to be producing it in the copious quantities that we do i think you know, we're really looking for me plastic pollution is a is a serious issue i think plastic production is a serious issue and i think this sort of disposable lifestyle is a serious issue and uh, yeah i think we need to spend more time outside well, we've um, we've reached the end of our time today, but I think um, I appreciate everyone joining in the conversation and Brendan for leading the conversation. Yes, thank you. Thank you for hosting this. Yes, thank you everybody for coming out. So Brendan, tell everyone how people can find ASC and join your live streams. Yeah, so um, all of our links are on AtlantisCalling.com. I'm going to drop down in our group here on Discord. I'll drop a bunch of information after the fact um, as far as all that goes. Like I said, our live streams are every other Tuesday night at 7.30 Central. Like I said, then usually the podcast comes out the next year or something like that. And we chop it up into reels or TikToks and stuff like that as well. But uh, yeah, most just go to our website or Facebook. We, so we stream our lives on Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks everyone for joining and keep an eye out for our next Seasteading Social event. Again, we host these every month. And then I also host a coffee talk, which is not recorded on the uh, second Thursday of the month uh, here in Discord. So that's an open discussion about anything related to Seasteading. Um, and everyone have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. The Seasteading Today podcast is produced and hosted by Carly Jackson. Send feedback and questions to podcast at seasteading.org. To support our podcast and the Seasteading mission, go to seasteading.org slash donate. If you'd like to learn more, read Seasteading, How Floating Nations Will Restore the Environment, Enrich the Poor, Cure the Sick, and Liberate Humanity from Politicians. Politicians.